0: It's a huge honor for me to join you in this chapel today. In a few minutes, I'm going to direct your attention to Ephesians 1. So if you have a Bible or want to pull one out from the seat in front of you, I would like to read a few verses from Ephesians 1 to begin with, Though we will not actually focus on those texts until um, a few minutes from now. Ephesians 1, I'm going to read from verse 3 to verse 14. Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Problems and solutions must fit together. If you say, I've got this calculus problem, you would really don't want a friend to reply, great, let's read a Shakespearean sonnet. Or if someone says, my car won't start, fine, let's practice our guitars. My cakes always fall when I take them out of the oven. Oh, no problem, let me show you how to adjust this engine. It's ridiculous. In other words, problems and solutions must fit together. So when you start asking what the gospel is, you must also ask, what's the problem that it's addressing? that's why we began last week with dr neil plantiga speaking on what is sin you'll recall that plantiga covered in different degrees of detail various aspects of sin sin as guilt that is before god we stand rightly condemned Sin as acting in defiance of shalom, as he understood it. That is, shalom, the entire well-being that we ought to have before him in this world and in the world to come. Peace in that sense. Well-being without which we are completely undone. Well-being before God. Well-being with one another. Well-being in the created order in which God has placed us. Sin as succumbing to the devil himself who sometimes goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, sometimes attacking Christians with vicious persecution, and sometimes functioning as an angel of light, deceiving, if it were possible, the very elect. In other words, sometimes he's vicious and sometimes he's subtle, but it's still the devil and and he, he can do huge damage amongst us. And then the fact that sin enchains us it establishes our own mental tracks, our own priorities, our own habits, our own addictions so that we ourselves are, 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 are completely ensnared by our own wills and our own natures. A sin as, as eschatology, that is sin as, as that which condemns us and trips us, us, now, trips us now and, and ultimately consigns us to God's own judgment, a hell that we choose for ourselves locking the door from the inside, yet at the same time, which is nothing less than God's own pronouncement upon our evil and rebellion and anarchy. So whatever the gospel is, it must address all of that, or it isn't much. So let me tell you where we're going. First, I'm going to say what the gospel is and is not, rather briefly. Then what the gospel addresses, how it does so, rather briefly. And then I'm going to provide one passage, this one in Ephesians, to survey quickly what the gospel provides us with. So first, what the gospel is. It's important, first of all, to say that the gospel is news. And what you do with news is announce it. So the gospel is not first and foremost what we ought to do, for example. The obligations that are upon our lives according to God's holy word. There are lots of obligations on our lives according to scripture. But all the obligations are not gospel. Jesus says, for example, that the most important commandment is to love God with heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. Those two commands are blisteringly important. And one must rightly ask where they fit into the whole biblical array of things. But neither one is the gospel. The Bible never suggests that they are. It's the wrong category in any case. What the gospel is, is news. It's news about what God has done, in particular, in Christ Jesus. That's what the gospel is. It's what God has done, in particular in Christ Jesus, especially in his death and resurrection. So what you do with news is announce it. There's a saying that goes around every once in a while. It it shows up on the internet every once in a while. Uh, It's alleged to have come from Francis of Assisi, but there's no record that he actually ever said it. Preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. Well, it sounds really cute, and it's designed to get us active and obedient and not merely word people who have no outworking of the gospel in our lives. A motive in saying this alleged thing from Francis of Assisi is good, but it makes about as much sense as saying to a news anchor at the 10 o'clock news, this evening, give us the news. If necessary, use words. What you do with news is announce it. That's what you do with news. And thus, there is a huge emphasis in Scripture on preaching the gospel, on teaching the gospel, on heralding the gospel, on bearing witness to the gospel, because above all, it's what God has done. It's not about our believing. If we say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, is that the gospel? Well, um, the centrality of Jesus and, and what you must do to respond to him is, is, is bound up with the gospel. But, but the gospel itself is not belief. It's, it's Jesus and what he has done. There's a very recent book. It's just drawn to my attention. Written by the current director of um, World Vision. It's called The Hole in Our Gospel. The Hole in Our Gospel. And um, the subtitle is, What Does God Expect of Us? And we're told in there that the hole in our gospel is that we don't care enough for the poor. The number of children who die every day. AIDS victims. The broken and the diseased. The hole in our gospel is that we really need to spend more time, more money, more attention, more priority to working with the dispossessed. And you know, we ought to. But it's not the gospel. One of my friends across the road, when he was given a summary of the book, said, I suspect the real hole in the gospel is not lack of concern for the physical needs of the poor, but lack of courage to call people to repent of their sins and to turn to Jesus. More money is given by Christians to World Vision than to all the other mission organizations put together. The hole in the gospel for world vision is Jesus. My hunch is that non-Christians like Bill Gates and the Red Cross have deep compassion for the poor because of common grace. That is, God gives grace commonly to all kinds of people. It's good when Muslims, Christians, and atheists work to solve the problem of poverty. So compassion for the poor comes from God. But it is not distinctively Christian, and it is not the same as the biblical definition of the gospel. I suspect that the real hole in the gospel is the gospel. It's the good news of what God has done in Christ Jesus, especially in his cross and resurrection. Now, from that, I immediately want to say, from that flows such transformation of life that we ought to do these sorts of things. I'll come back to that in a moment. But it's important to see what it is that we're announcing. We're not announcing a guilt trip, please give more money to World Vision. We're announcing When we preach the gospel, what God has done in Christ Jesus, and it is spectacular, it is glorious, we need to know what it is. And then of course, we need to know how that works out in our lives. Not too long ago, some some friends started work in in an inner city project because they wanted to pursue a holistic gospel. I applauded them, I, I thought it was terrific. And then about a year and a half later, I asked how it was going, and they told me what they were doing about this and about that and about the other thing. I said, um, Have you got any Bible studies started? H- have you actually explained what Jesus did on the cross to anybody? H- have you actually pressed anyone on the basis of the gospel to repent and believe? No, 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 we haven't got there yet. I tell you the truth, they don't have a holistic gospel, they've got a halfistic gospel, maybe a quarteristic gospel. It's not even close. In in fact, they're mixing their categories. They're doing good things, but it still isn't the gospel. The gospel is news, and what you do with news is preach it. You announce it. You herald it. You teach it. And it's the good news of what God has done. Second, this gospel then addresses all the problems that Neil Plantinga laid out, all of the different facets of sin. Let me run through them really quickly. Guilt? 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 This gospel announces that Christ came and bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Romans 3 puts it this way. God does this. He presents Jesus as a a sacrifice who himself absorbs the judgment that we should receive so that God might remain just while declaring us just. The presupposition is that God, if God were to say simply, oh, Hitler's a pretty nasty dude, but it's all right, I forgive him anyway. Don Carson, he's a right sinner, but it doesn't matter, I forgive him in any case. Then where would God's justice be? But instead, God comes to us in the person of his own dear son who bears our sin in his own body on the tree, canceling the debt, turning aside God's own righteous wrath, and all of this out of God's love for us. So, the gospel meets our guilt. Then the gospel also comes to answer the various ways in which we've smashed. Shalom. We're reconciled to God. The, the guilt is removed and God receives us back to himself. Not only so, but we ourselves, we ourselves are reconciled to each other. The way the Bible pictures sin in the beginning is something like this. In the beginning there is God and there are human beings. And each human being is rightly related to God and therefore rightly related to other human beings. So when you wake up in the morning you think, isn't God wonderful? And you bask in his love and you reflect on him and you want the day to bring glory to him. And your fellow human being is is in the same way of looking at things. Then at the heart of rebellion, at the heart of Genesis 3, at the heart of anarchy, the human beings each start to say, I am at the center of the universe. I will be God. No one is going to tell me what to do. And if there is a God, let him or her or it serve me. Or else, quite frankly, I'll find other gods, thank you. And there is the beginning of idolatry and fences and jealousy and hate and rape and war and lust and pride and arrogance and on and on and on all because we begin by saying I will be God. And shalom is smashed. But when guilty sinners like you and me are reconciled to this God inevitably we become reconciled to each other. That's why there's so much emphasis in the New Testament on Love in the church for brothers and sisters in Christ. By this shall all know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And then we become concerned likewise to do justice in the broader world. And we are concerned about God's created order, not simply because it is part of this fallen order, but because such concern anticipates resurrection existence in a new heaven and a new earth, a home of righteousness, where there will be such a massive restoration that there will be no death or decay or sin or destruction or hate or greed or exploitation, no idolatry, no sin ever again. And then, of course, the gospel, because Christ has died and risen, declared us just and returned to the Father, he pours out in consequence of his own triumph, he pours out the Holy Spirit who radically transforms us. That's what the new birth is all about. If we were just forgiven our sin but had no power to overcome our sin, well, it would be nice to get the guilt off our shoulders, but it wouldn't be transforming But this news about what God has done in Christ not only looks after the guilt, it provides the gift of the Holy Spirit as the down payment of the promised inheritance. And this blessed Holy Spirit transforms us and changes us and enables us to stand up to the devil and his wiles. He enables us to to see deceit and to be strengthened in our wills and minds and hearts to love what we didn't used to love. At the time of the Reformation, there was a huge emphasis on the importance of justification. And that was right, it was part of the dispute of the age. But at the time of the evangelical awakening, the period of Wesley and Whitfield in the 18th century, then there was a huge emphasis on being born again. It is said that George Whitfield, the famous British evangelist who crossed the Atlantic 13 times by sail, finally died on this side and saw thousands and thousands and thousands converted it is said of him he preached in one village and moved on to another and then another he often preaching five times a day it is said that in the course of his ministry he preached on john three you must be born again you must be born again three thousand times and eventually he preached on it so often that some wags began to say "Uh, brother whitfield Uh, Why do you preach again and again and again? You must be born again. Always the same thing. You must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born again. Because, he said, you must be born again. (laughs) (laughs) For it is not enough, you see, simply to have your your sins pardoned. You must be renewed and transformed. You must be born again. And that, too, is provided in the good news of what Christ has achieved on, on our behalf. And then, on on top of all of that, um, this victory is not just for this life. This gospel not only transforms us in measure now, but the Holy Spirit is seen as the one who is a kind of down payment of everything that's coming. And all that's coming includes coming back from the grave, resurrection, existence, transformation, a body like Christ's resurrection body in a new heaven and a new earth on the last day. That's why you and I can never, ever begin, rightly, to assess the significance of what the gospel is if we only look at what it's giving me now. Now, what it's giving me now is pretty spectacular. Forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, the church, the gift of the Holy Spirit, it's, it's pretty spectacular. But throw in 50 billion years or so, just to beef up the equation a wee bit. Did you see A new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness, transformed existence. With Jesus himself saying, well done, good and faithful slave. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Come and share your master's happiness. That's all the product of the gospel. This is what the gospel is and is not, and what the gospel addresses. Now let me come to our text. What does the gospel actually provide us with? I'm sure you noticed on the way toward the end that um, we are introduced to the word of truth, verse 13, the gospel of our salvation. That's what this paragraph is about. And what, in particular, does this gospel provide us with? I'm going to mention four things. It begins first with a kind of general sweep And then it itemizes the four things in the following verses. The sweep is found in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then the spiritual blessings that flow from the gospel are laid out in the following verses. But there are a couple of details about this opening thing that we should probably think about. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, that is all the spiritual blessings that I have already uh, itemized come to us exclusively from Christ. Sins forgiven? Christ. The gift of the Holy Spirit? Christ. Reconciliation with one another? Christ. Love amongst brothers and sisters? Christ. The promise of life to come, resurrection, existence? Christ. Christ. Strength to overcome the devil? Christ. It all comes to us from Christ, who is at the center of the gospel, what God has done in Christ Jesus. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. But there's another little expression in here that we also ought to pause at. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. What does that mean? This expression, being blessed in the heavenly realms or something like that, shows up only five times In the entire Bible, and all of them in Ephesians. It's a remarkable expression. Now, because I'm paid to say things like this, you know, I teach theology. Let me tell you what it means in theological terms and then unpack it. To be blessed with Christ or to be seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, expressions that keep showing up in this book, is the spatial equivalent of inaugurated eschatology. I'm paid to say that. (laughs) It's the spatial equivalent of inaugurated eschatology. Let me explain, because it's wonderful once you realize what's going on. Eschatology simply has to do with the end. Ultimately, at the end, there is a massive transformation, the new heaven and the new earth. But Christians who've read their Bibles at all know that in some ways the age to come has already dawned. It's already inaugurated we call that inaugurated or realized eschatology. That is, in some ways, the kingdom has already come. Christ is already reigning. He says, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, of course, that reign at the moment is contested, but one day it will not be contested. That's futurist eschatology. But right now, the eschatology is already here. The end has already come. The pronouncement of God that I'm just that I should receive at the end is already pronounced upon me now because Jesus has already paid for my sins. This is inaugurated eschatology. So Christians are used to saying things like, we live between the already and the not yet. We live between the fact that Christ has already died and we already have forgiveness of sins and we already have eternal life and and the not yet. We do not yet have resurrection existence. We do not have the, the new heaven and the new earth. We live between the already and the not yet. And this expression, is a kind of spatial equivalent of that. Now take a look at the five instances where this expression is found. First of all, this one in verse 3. Then a little farther down in verse 20. That power, verse 19, is the same as his mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. So in the heavenly realms now is the place where God lives and where Christ is seated with his heavenly Father. Chapter 2, verse 6, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now what does that mean? I mean, I can make sense of Christ being seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly realms, but what about God seating us with Christ in the heavenly realms? Already. And then pressing on to chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10. God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That is, the announcement of God's triumph in Christ Jesus is not only preached and announced down here, but even in the cosmic sphere with with angels bearing witness to to what God has done on this little planet for his image bearers. In the heavenly realms, there is witness going on. And then chapter 6, verse 12. The last occurrence. Chapter 6, verse 12. This in the context of the armor we're supposed to put on. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That is, Satan and the fallen hosts still exist and still oppose us. And so our conflict is not merely interpersonal here, it's not merely social or political or economic. There is a huge conflict going on. A cosmic wide, a sweeping fight between good and evil, between God himself and the devil himself, without God ever relinquishing his absolute and utter authority and sovereignty. And God's intent is that we should engage in this battle by putting on the full armor of God that we might withstand against even the evil powers in the heavenly realms. Now, how do we put all that together? What does that mean for us? You see, what I said is that inaugurated eschatology shows that in some ways we're already under God's reign. Even though we're not under his reign uncontested. And in some ways, we're already, as it were, transported to God's side in Christ Jesus in the heavenly realms. When when God looks at me, he doesn't look at me as it were just Don Carson down in Chicago. He looks at me as it were through his son Christ. I'm secure in him. I'm as safe in him now as I ever will be fifty billion years from now. I'm I'm identified with him. I'm I'm secure in him. And if 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 Christ is at the Father's right hand in glory, then in some sense Don Carson is too. Oh I'm not there yet in the sense that I will be when there's a new heaven and a new earth, a home of righteousness. But but I'm so identified with him that if 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 Christ is there, then I'm there too. I'm I'm so identified with him. I'm secure. I'm I'm at the Father's right hand too, don't you see? And engaged in this larger cosmic struggle. That's why you get a a similar picture in Hebrews chapter 12 of of the church already being gathered, not at Mount Sinai, but already being gathered at the new Jerusalem. This assembly of the firstborn before the throne of God. Do you see? We're already there. Whereas whereas there in principle, there in God's mind, there in terms of what's already been achieved as we will ever be. And if instead we're still here, well, we will be there. It's already started. It's inaugurated. It's a kind of spatial equivalent. Do you see? Something to delight in, to rejoice over. Now, in particular, what does this gospel bring us then? Number one, we have been chosen and adopted. We have been chosen and adopted. Verse four to six, for God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, I know we can get all hung up on predestination and election and things like that. Don't be too frightened of the words. After all, they're in the Bible. We should use them and try to use them the same way that the Bible writers do. At its base, the notion is not really all that difficult. Think of Abraham. There he is in Ur of the Chaldees. And he does not get up one day and say, uh, God, seems to me that this world is going to hell in a tea basket. One judgment after another. I mean, first there was the flood, now Babel. And still there is sin and decay and corruption everywhere. I've got a suggestion. I suggest you start a whole new humanity. You could begin it with me. I'll be the granddaddy of the whole lot. You tell me what to do and I'll do it. We'll make a little covenant along those lines. And eventually my children, (laughs) they'll be as numerous as the sands of the sea. We'll make a whole new humanity and show what ought to be. Is that what happens? No, God chooses Abraham. Well, how about Moses? Does Moses come along and say, "Um, I'll fix this? Well, actually, he does. He tries to do that as a young man, manages to commit murder, and then run for his life. It's only when he's 80 years old on the backside of a desert, and really feeling that life has passed him by, that God chooses Moses. In exactly the same way, in the most ultimate sense, God chooses us. And He chooses us, we're called, we're told, for adoption, the adoption of sonship. Now that needs to be explained, because when we think of adoption in the Western world, we think of adoption in terms of little babies, newly born occasionally a two-year-old or a three-year-old that's taken in as a foster child or the like, and then after a while the foster parents decide that they'll adopt the child and so on. It's rather rare. It happens, but it's rather rare today to have, a, let's say, a 20-year-old being adopted. But in the ancient world, adoption of adults was not uncommon. If you had, for example, a a family with some significant resources and um, they had no children of their own or they had only black sheep as their children who couldn't be trusted with anything, then it was quite possible for the family legally to adopt someone whom they would like to make a son. That son would then take on the family name and have the family rights and be the family heir and so on, so on, so on. It was, it was bound up with the obligation then to be stamped by that family, to be owned by that family as it were, to belong to that family, to have the rights and privileges of that family. Do you see? You may remember that that's what Abraham wanted to do with Eliezer at one point too. So God, we're told, has chosen us to be holy and blameless, predestining us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Sons of the living God, his children, to act like him, to behave like him, to be identified with his family. To inherit he want, what he wants us to inherit. That's the first. Then second, we have been redeemed and forgiven. Verses 7 and 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Now, redemption today is a God-talk word, isn't it? I mean, nobody in the streets of Chicago who's not a Christian is ever going to use the word Redemption. Well, when I was a boy, people still used redemption sometimes in the secular world. It's, it's past now. It was used in economic terms. You redeemed your mortgage. I meant you paid it off. Or if you, if you sold your grandfather's watch in a pawn shop to get some extra money, and then you went back some weeks later to, to get the watch back, you had to pay the price plus a small percentage, and you redeemed the watch. So, so that notion of redemption was, was still around, but it's just about gone now. Virtually nobody in the Western world speaks of redeeming a mortgage anymore. But in the ancient world, redemption language was pretty common. It wasn't just god talk word. And it was often bound up with slavery. In the ancient world, you could become a slave because of a raiding party. You could become a slave because one side was beaten in a military tussle. But you could become a slave in the ancient world because there were no chapter 11 or chapter 13 bankruptcy protection laws. So if you borrow some money from some rich person, start a business, then the economy tanks and you go bankrupt, you, you, can't, you can't take out chapter 11 and, and, and thus be protected while you try to pay off your debtors. The only thing you can do, the thing you had to do, legally you had to do it, was to sell yourself and perhaps your family as slaves then to the one who held your note. That's why in the ancient world there could be slaves from any race. In American slavery, slavery was bound up with one race. But in the ancient world you could be a Brit that was free, or a Brit that was slave. You could be an Italian that was free or an Italian that was slave. You could be an African that was free or an Italian that, or, or, or an African that was a slave, and so on, so on, so on. Because, because it wasn't tied to just one race. Anybody could go bankrupt. But suppose then you become a slave because of bankruptcy laws. But you have a rich cousin 20 miles down the road. In those days, 20 miles is a full day's trip. So it's a while, because he doesn't have a cell phone, poor chap, it's a while before he hears that you've got into trouble. So some weeks later, he hears that you're in trouble, and because this cousin is not only rich, but but he cares for you, he comes back and buys you out. Now, there was a whole mechanism for doing this kind of thing in the pagan temples, but what he would do was redeem you. He would set you free. He would pay the price to set you free. Do you see? He would redeem you. You would be redeemed as a slave. So in the New Testament often we're told that God redeems us in Christ Jesus. And what he frees us from is slavery to sin. Do you recall how last week Neil Plantinga told about how sin enslaves us? The bad habits and the addictions they they keep crippling us and crippling us and crippling us until we're utterly destroyed and undone and we see no way of breaking free? Listen. The old hymn had it right. He breaks the power of cancelled sin and sets the captive free. You see, the sin is cancelled. That's, that, that's justification. The, the, the sin is paid for. That, that's justification. But, but where's the power to break the power of sin? He breaks the power of cancelled sin and sets the captive free. He redeems us from all of the curse and the enslaving power of sin. And part of that is forgiving us completely. And all of this through his blood. You see, again, it's what God has done in Christ Jesus, especially in the cross. In him, we have redemption through his blood, set free from our slavery. There are a lot of contemporary courses that talk about how we're free, we're free, we're free. Well, yes, 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 yes. John's Gospel reminds us, if the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. But the context shows that it is freedom from sin it's freedom from enslavement to ourself and to the devil. That's the freedom that we have. There is another sense in which we become joyful slaves to Jesus Christ. And so we've been freed from this wretched monster called sin, this thing that almost have, has an independent life of its own with its guilt and its enslaving powers. And, and we have now, because of Christ's death, through his blood, The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. That cousin, 20 miles away, didn't have to come. He didn't have to pay his money. God doesn't have to come. He doesn't have to pay his son. But it's in accordance with the lavish gift of God's grace in Christ Jesus, demonstrated in the shedding of his blood. Third, we have been shown God's high mystery, We have been shown God's high mystery. Now, some translations read this last bit that I quoted this way. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with wisdom and understanding. Or some read, with all wisdom and understanding, with the next words. It doesn't really make much difference. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment. What does that mean? God was determined to make known to us his mystery. What does that mean? Well, mystery, a word that's used 27 or 28 times in the New Testament, does not mean done whodunit. It doesn't even mean something that is mysterious. We speak in theology of the mystery of God because there are so many things about him we don't know that are beyond us. It's right that we should so speak, but that's not the way the Bible uses the word mystery, musterion. The way the Bible predominantly uses the word mystery is this, some things have been hidden in times past. And now in the coming of Christ, they're revealed. They were hidden and now they're revealed. So, what was hidden in time past? Have you ever reflected on the fact that even the apostles themselves didn't expect Jesus to die? Even though he told them again and again and again that he would die, they were crushed. And they didn't expect him to rise from the dead either. Do you know the biggest proof of that? After Jesus is dead and buried, by which time you think that they twig and remember what he said, they're in an upstairs room afraid that the authorities are going to knock on the door and arrest them too. They're not saying, yes, I can hardly wait till Sunday, because they're not anticipating Sunday's resurrection. It's still hidden from them. They don't see it. They anticipated a messianic king. They anticipated someone who would who would introduce the kingdom. They, they anticipated someone who, who would come with righteousness and turf out the Romans and, and, and restore holiness. But, but, but someone who would come and die the death of a damned criminal, crying in agony, and someone who would rise from the dead, they didn't expect it. But after it's all happened and they've been instructed further by the resurrected Jesus, then they can begin to see those Old Testament passages that really did point in that direction. It was hidden, but now it's revealed. All those passages about the Passover, Lamb, for example, the Passover that is celebrated year after year after year after year, they're always looking backward. They don't realize that the repetition of the Passover looks forward so that the Apostle Paul can say, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. All those repetitive sacrifices that look back to the past also looked forward to Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world so that God's wrath passes over his own people. And all of those sacrifices from the Old Testament, so many things from the Old Testament, they they didn't see the patterns. They, 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 They didn't grasp them. They were hidden. But, God says, now they've been revealed to us. Do you know God could have saved you and He could have saved me without explaining anything, or without explaining very much? Given us a whole lot of truth and told to repent and believe, and then empowered us by His Spirit to repent and believe. He doesn't have to give us a whole Bible, which is a pretty big book, covering long periods of time, written in different languages. But that's what he's done, and this side of the cross, what it does is give us insight into the very mind of God. And he has shown us what his purposes were. So that not only does he save us, but he enables us to see what's going on in the mind of God and bow and worship. Do you hear what's being said? With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, According to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. This mystery of his will, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Ultimately, there will be a final consummation at the end, transforming everybody and everything. And already we understand it because of God's grace toward us. And last, we have been claimed as God's portion We've been claimed as God's portion. In him we also were chosen. The word for chosen there is not the regular word. It means something like we were appointed by lot. We were appointed by lot to be God's people. The, the Old Testament is, is rich on this theme. For example, we, we are told in the Song of Moses, the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. So in verse 11, we're told, we, we, we are God's people. We've been chosen by lot to be God's own people and the purpose of his will. First of all, there were Jews, verse 12, and then Gentiles, verse 13, and all of us then have been stamped as God's people by a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is given to us. us to transform us. Listen. We are God's portion. He owns us and then stamps us as His with the blessed Holy Spirit. What astonishing mercy and power. In accord with His pleasure and will, He created each planet, each flower, every galaxy, microbe and hill. He suspended this planet in space to the praise of his glorious grace. With despicable self-love and rage, we rebelled and fell under the curse. Yet God did not rip out the page and destroy all who love the perverse. No, he chose us to make a new race to the praise of his glorious grace providentially ruling all things to conform to the end he designed he mysteriously governs and brings his eternal wise plans into time he works out every step every trace to the praise of his glorious grace long before the creation began he foreknew those he'd ransom in christ long before times cold hourglass ran he ordained the supreme sacrifice in the cross he removed our disgrace to the praise of his glorious grace We were blessed in the heavenly realms long before being included in Christ. Since we heard the good news, overwhelmed, we reach forward to seize paradise. We shall see him ourselves face to face to the praise of his glorious grace. Let us pray. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.